I watched the the video of the chat between Gore Vidal and uh, William F. Buckley. So Gore Vidal is like very eloquent, and he calls him a crypto Nazi. And Buckley's oh, like, yeah. "Call me a crypto Nazi again, you goddamn fag! I'll suck you in the in the mouth." <laughs> you've missed you've missed it out, George. It's uh, you call me a crypto fascist once again. You what did you say? You goddamn queer. I'll suck you in the jaw and you'll still be plastered. So that's that's the sort of level of discussion that Alex and I are going to have. So you'll have to chair that. If we can, if we can, if we can reach such peaks, I'd be I'd be pretty pleased with our performance. Yeah, yeah. that's good. That's. So when you say kind of to Okay, welcome little lambs to the sixth episode of Afe Bunga Bunga. I'm Philip Cunliffe, I tweet at the Philippics. Uh, this week we're going to be talking about the Manchester bombing, which happened on the 22nd of May. Um, many people killed and wounded when a 22-year-old Libyan-British jihadist blew himself up in Manchester Arena. And we're going to be talking about different kinds of how we understand um, jihadism, because obviously it's provoked a debate in the UK as to um, how a British-born jihadist ended up doing this. Um, so we'll be talking about different responses to that. Um, but before we do that, let's take an opportunity to refamiliarize ourselves with um, with the crew here at Alpha Bunga Bunga. So we've got Alex Hokley. Hello, I'm Alex. I tweet at Alex double underscore 1789. And we've got George. George, tell us about uh, tell us where you tweet. Um, I thought you were going to introduce me there. That would have been nice. But I tweet at Polwek with a Q. And that's on Twitter.com, right? That's where you tweet. Yeah, mostly. No, no, yeah. Sometimes I just shout stuff out the window, but it's not really got many followers so far. I mean, that's basically Twitter as well. Yeah. <laughs> so we need. So there are a few things we need to clear out the way first before we get stuck into that. So you need to explain to our, our doubting listeners the Irish accent. Also, you need to tweet a picture of yourself with today's paper yeah, you in Sao Paulo. You will so need not to, to, to confirm that I'm not actually a robot, which there have been suspicions. An Irish um, robot. Because I don't laugh at really bad jokes that other people make that maybe, you know, this guy's not really human. An Irish robot. You need to explain the Irish accent. Why would, yeah. Well, it's just programmed that way. I mean, I thought they, you know, they, I think there's those studies that uh, people with Irish accents are more trustworthy, <laughs> or seems more trustworthy in the UK, and so they just programmed me in to have this voice rather than, Okay. You know. Well, you're doing, you're doing a good job at passing the Turing test anyway, so if you ended up like in, uh, if you ended up in uh, a Westworld um, themed, like, you know, sec, as, a, as a Westworld Irish <laughs> sex bot... Um, uh-huh. do you think, which is you, an aspiration of mine, yeah. <laughs> would you work like in the bar? Would you be like one of the guys who like goes out like you know um, on the expeditions with the theme park visitors? How would it work? I mean, I was hoping for Rent Boy. Is that still available? Is that because I was I was trying to pitch for that? But you know, I mean, my these again also my aspirations are themselves programmed in. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna break the script. I'm pretty like low level in terms of consciousness. We're, we're just we're not even broaching kind of real, real sort of humanity here. So I hope that clears things up for our listeners. So um, what are we what were you guys thinking about this week then? So uh, let's start with you, George. What were you thinking about this week? 
Um, <clears throat> so I've been I've been reading the the Descent of Man by Grayson Perry, which um, okay is but forget it. Alex, what were you thinking about? Tell us. <laughs> <laughs> Let me consult my orb. Um, <laughs> Let me touch my glowing orb. Um, the Descent we'll, of Man. Alex, we'll come back really, to you in a few minutes if you've got. <laughs> really <laughs> yeah, 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 George. George yeah, I'm gonna. Like, give me some alone time with the orb, George, to continue. <laughs> um, no, so I've been reading this book, uh, The Descent of Man by Grayson Perry, um, and that's what I've been thinking about, although I don't really have all that much to say about it, other than it does have some nice illustrations. You know, well, why like, did you bring up the Grayson Perry, then? Death and destruction. Ask me again what I've been thinking about. Okay, George, what have you been thinking about this week? Well, I've mainly, I guess, been thinking about the Manchester attack, so I've been reading some other stuff, but it hasn't really made an impact on my mental world so i don't have anything to say <laughs> that's really lame that's even more lame than reading grayson perry yeah that's that so anyway my, 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 my orb my orb my orb has told me the following which is that if you're if you're feeling a little bit upset you know you're a little bit down but prospects of the world you just remember that mark zuckerberg is going to lose the next u.s presidential election and that just makes me so happy <laughs> <laughs> that is something actually that makes me kind of happy. <laughs> and I was, yeah, it'll, no, be like, it'll be like as gratifying as Michael Ignatiev's defeat um, when he went yes. to the Canadian Premiership some years back and was just totally crushed by the Conservative opposition or the Conservative Party in Canada. And that would be, um, yeah, that would be really, really gratifying. Excellent. Yeah, Thanks, Orb. To to. Yeah, thank you, Orb. So it's, is there a word for that in German? The feeling that you're going to be taking pleasure in other people's misfortunes. Uh, okay, well, if we're, um, I think, you know, we can move on to discussing the topic for the week, which is the, um, the both the Manchester bombing, um, which happened um, about 10 days ago now, um, or about a week ago, rather, and to discuss the response to it and what the debate has been around what happened. Um, so, presuming most people know what happened is, uh, like we, like I said at the beginning of the program, when a Libyan uh, British-born, or a British-born uh, jihadi Libyan, whose family was Libyan, settled in the UK, blew himself up in the Manchester Arena, at an Ariana Grande concert after after people were leaving late in the evening, killed 22 people, injured something like 60 people, a lot of them critically, and it promoted a it's promoted a tremendous um, debate, particularly as it becomes clearer that the um, family was involved in his the bomber's family was involved in Islamist insurgency against Gaddafi back in 2011. And furthermore, that the British intelligence services helped to um, organize and support the return of um, British Libyans to Libya because the policy of the British government at the time was to oust Gaddafi. So lots of complexity, but also more, I mean, more to the point beyond the kind of intrigue and machinations of the security services, you had the astounding and shocking thing that um, beyond the bloodshed and violence, that a 22-year-old would know with, you know, in principle, everything to live for coming from a stable family background, as far as we can tell. Um, nothing in particular that what would cause somebody to cut their life, sh what kind of ideology would cause somebody to think that the right response would be for them to 
massacre um, young people and an audience, and also that their life would be worth sacrificing for that. So lots of, obviously, there's lots of responses to it, and these are often some of the responses that uh, recur um, in terms of uh, classic kind of xenophobic responses that you might get about um, the dangers, the intrinsic dangers of Islam attacking, uh, linking Islamism and jihadism to immigration, um, <clears throat> turning my Muslims into a suspect minority that need to be policed. Um, to the other extreme, where you had, for example, um, on the opposite end, an article in the British newspaper, The Independent, that said that the um, that it's not really anything to do with Islam, but rather to do with toxic masculinity. So there's a different range of responses. Um, and one of the most sophisticated was put forward by a French specialist on Islamism called Olivier Roy, who is a very interesting guy, and probably, at least in my mind, um, Alex was worried that uh, Alex was worried that we might come across as fanboys if uh, we if we talked about him too much. But the truth is, I am a fanboy of, of Olivier, so I'm going to give the fanboy account of his ideas. So he's an ex-Maoist, and he hung out with the Mujahideen in the 1980s, just to say the um, Islamist fighters who led the Islamist insurgency, which was supported by the CIA the origins of Al-Qaeda, who fought against the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in the 1980s. And a lot of his field work and original research in Central Asia was based around with them. And anyway, so his point, his main point is that really this, that the jihadism doesn't have much to do with Islamism. Sorry, jihadism doesn't have much to do with Islam at all. He has a big data set of all the people who've been involved in um, jihadi attacks in the West. And some typical kind of profiles, he says, come out. About a quarter of them are converts, so they're not born Muslim. And the majority of them are generally kind of, um, tend to be kind of uh, lower middle class backgrounds. They tend to have dabbled in drugs, petty crime. Uh, you kind of alien, be classic profile of alienated youth. Um, none of them are particularly pious or religious or particularly socialized into the traditional religions of their family and elders. And oftentimes they're radicalized online. And um, one of the implications of his research being, the fact, that all these attempts to infiltrate and monitor what mosques are doing are fairly redundant, because whatever happens in mosques, it doesn't actually. It is not where the typical Western jihadist becomes um, indoctrinated, exposed to, and um, turns into a jihadi. Most of that happens online or in smaller scale groups. Often through, it can often happen in jail, and um, after they're usually imprisoned for some kind of petty misdemeanor or dealing low-level dealing of drugs or car crime or something like that, and also often through a family member. So what he says is it's the Islamization of radicalism. It's the a kind of nihilistic youth culture, a generational revolt of disaffected youth. Um, suburban youth typically who um, reject the kind of mores of their elders and reject the reject the um, society in which they live and they do it through and Islam is the thing through which they do it. They're not particularly they're not particularly devout or conservative typically they often drink and party and do drugs and then they have this sudden kind of switch around to become devout um, devout suicide bombers, mass murderers. Um, I will maybe go and uh, fight for the caliphate in Syria and Iraq and then come back and do something like that. So 
What are people, what do we think of this idea of Islamization of radicalism? How much does it stack up? So I, I think like there's a lot that's compelling in that. But just as a general observation, I had the feeling that in response to this attack, there was a little bit more of a serious reckoning, especially from, let's say, liberals and, and the left, that there needs to be a sort of response to this. And as so, you know, usually the response tends to be an authoritarian right-wing one, a xenophobic one, and a left-wing one, which almost at certain ends like tends to a sort of, of apologism uh, for terrorism or tries to explain it away in a certain way. And I think this time, I don't know if this is just me, but it seems, at least amongst the Anglo world, a bit more of a serious reckoning with Islamism that there needs to be a response to this. And that's probably a good thing. And I think... Hua is a really good starting point. I think you're right in, in the way you've uh, explained his argument that another way of putting it is that Islam provides more of a motif than a motive, um, that it's not Islam which creates uh, jihadist terrorism, but rather that it's a radicalization, or rather that there's a, a sort of rebellion, a cultural rebellion, uh, which finds in Islam, this, or in particular forms of Islam, the sort of uh, resources uh, to explain their sense of rebellion and their own sense of enemy and alienation. And I think that's really, that's really convincing. Where my reservations about it, I think we can discuss this in a bit more depth, is that as much as that seems convincing and, hit, and Hua's empirical work seems impeach, unimpeachable, um, looking at the particular, as you described it, looking at how these uh, jihadists basically have no connection to Islam. They don't go to mosques, they don't study, they're just dropouts and losers who then go, well, I'm going to find some meaning through Islam, like through Islamist radicalism. Um, but the problem is that there is still a continuum, isn't there? I guess this is a question. Isn't there a continuum between ISIS to other forms of jihadism, Al-Qaeda, through to Sufism and Wahhabism, forms which, and, and people who perhaps don't engage in terrorism might not even be fans of it, but who share <coughs> certain ideologies. So the idea that this is just something which can be, you can brush away all the extraneous factors and just go, look, it's just alienated individuals who seize on to jihadism as a motif. Um, yeah, but, you know, there's lots of other forms of Sufism or whatever that, that there, it exists on a continuum, right? So I guess there's something very compelling about Hua's argument, and yet it seems somehow insufficient. Yeah, I think it's a potentially a really good starting point. Um, but I think it does raise two questions or at least two questions. And one is why why there's so many nihilistic young people, especially young men. Um, and secondly, why do these, these nihilists choose the specific interpretation of Islam that they that they do? Um, and I mean, I think there's, there's a really good, I don't know if either of you have come across this, a really good Simon Critchley um, uh, analysis of, of nihilism. Um, and how we're we're a particularly nihilistic society, in a way that we don't really have a very strong argument against the nihilistic starting point of certain forms of of religious terrorism, because we don't have a very well articulated idea of of of, of what actually the meaning of life, either collectively or individually, is. So I guess that I mean that's that's a, a you know a very big question. They're both really good points, I think, of um, both that what's insufficient about Roy's analysis, but also the idea of the fact that um, if it is an underlying nihilism, then that has to be explained. You know, what is it about the society that makes it um, that makes it kind of uh, nihilistic, and how why is it so difficult to generate a response 
Um, and those are both good questions. I mean, I suppose one thing is, well, one possible response is, which was um, uh, put forward by the British commentator Kenan Malik in an article in The Guardian, was this idea that it's, um, and drawing attention to the broader, the broader kind of, um, or giving a kind of broader scope to understand um, nihilism is what he talks about, the jihadi frame of mind, by which he means actually people who, who've been in, who have similar kinds of um, murderous responses and engage in these murderous kind of um, murderous and violent nihilism, but aren't um, Islamist or jihadi, so that they have, they undertake similar kinds of things, but they aren't in any way claiming to be representative of, um, to be Muslims or to be representing the religion. So examples being, say, Dylan Roof, the white supremacist who um, shot up a black church and killed many worshippers in the US, um, the neo-Nazi murderer of the British MP, Joe Cox, last year, or more recently, a autistic um, British London student who was supposedly fascinated by Al-Qaeda, downloaded some manuals off the internet to make bombs, and tried to blow up a tube carriage, and wasn't, but, you know, wasn't particularly just, was fascinated by weapons and guns, and, but had no, he wasn't in any way connected to Al-Qaeda, and wasn't um, a jihadi in the sense that he had gone to fight anywhere, and he wasn't even a Muslim. So, yeah, I think that's I think that's a, I think it's a very valid point, and th there's a certain tendency which goes, yeah, but look, there's there's racist white nationalist terrorism as well, um, which kind of has an element of whataboutery to it, right? Like, yeah, okay, okay, but let's stop criticizing the Muslims because look, white people do it and they do it more. I mean, there's an article today which pointed out that in the past week there's been more murders by white na terrorist sort of acts by white nationalists than have been uh, perpetrated by Islamists in the U.S. over the course of like a I don't know how long, right? And you kind of go, well, that's not sufficient, right? That's not that because that doesn't obviate the need for to offer specific responses to Islamism, right? If we see it as a danger, not just to our societies, but even to the left, you know, so outside the West, that jihadism and Islamism is an ideology which is very, very much against, very counter to any sort of secular uh, left or socialist programs, right? So I still think that we need to have a response to Islamism. Um, but as you say, what if they're part of the same problem? Certainly in the West, anyway. What if what if nihilist terrorism is the issue, and it just happens to take on different forms, different motifs? So this alienated white dude, someone who might not even come from a Muslim background, if he's this fucking shithead loser who feels like his own sense of fucking worthlessness needs to be exploded onto the world, which is basically what these fucking losers are, he can either choose to convert to Sufi Islam and become a jihadist, or he can just go off and join some Nazi bros and blow up a black church, right? These are kind of the options that are available to the to this fucking alienated loser. So I think it's right that in some sense they should be treated as part of the same problem. Just as an aside, Alex, where is the Sufism thing coming from? Sorry, I, I, I've been saying Sufism and I meant Salafism, yeah. Yeah, uh, good that we have that, um, good that he pointed out the distinction because, um, you know, like Sufis, like, you know, um, the famous Sufi poets, they're all into, like, um, uh, chasing boys and drinking wine. So um, I guess that does kind of fit maybe some of the jihadi profile. But I think there tend to be, their tradition is uh, peaceful, 
peaceful introverted yeah. mysticism more than more than yeah they're, no they're the hippies I, I, I got <laughs> that's right i got the nihilists confused with the hippies damn it um <laughs> well there yet again connection there as well <laughs> let's yeah, not go, let's not go down that road <laughs> i guess then so what is so what is it though particularly i mean it seems to me like there's a bad faith element to kind of um and particularly among liberal commentators and left commentators in response to this their unwillingness or fear about um, talking about, and this is obviously on a point on which they're routinely baited by um, by the right, that they're unwilling to talk about um, the role of Islam in these um, cases. So even if we can think of examples like Dylan Roof um, or the murderer of Joe Cox or um, Anders Breivik who committed the mass murder of the um, at the Swedish youth camp some years back, um, who was a right wing, who was a Nazi... Um, you know, it seems clearly like, you know, te- these other guys tend to be genuinely kind of much more isolated, disconnected. They have no network um, to train them in bomb making. There's no kind of cell to which they're connected. And they're certainly not part of their kind of transnational flows of um, jihadists and insurgents circulating between Western capitals and the battlefields of Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria and now Libya. So clearly, I mean, and also, I mean, you know, the majority of um, of violent, um, the majority of this kind of um, mass murder, uh, mass murder, civilian casualty violence in Western states over the last few years has obviously not come from neo-Nazis um, or from um, random people like the, this, um, like the murderer of Joe Cox or something, but from an actual kind of organized jihadi network. So to avoid, you know, it's difficult to avoid the issue of Islam, surely. I think this is one point where the the right sort of has a very clear, um, a very clear response, which is that uh, this is proof that Islam is not compatible with Western civilization. It's not, you know, it's not compatible with the way that we want to live. Um, and it, I mean, so it reminds me a little bit of this um, Martin Amos uh, quote from two thousand and one. So it's a little, a little while ago, but it's I think it's, it's still relevant here. Um, so this was his his response to nine eleven. There's, I'll I'll just re- I'll just read it out in full, and we can see whether we think it's relevant and want to edit it out later. There's a definite urge, don't you have it, to say the Muslim community will have to suffer until it gets its house in order. What sort of suffering? Not letting them travel, deportation, further down the road, curtailing of freedoms, strip searching people who look like they're from the Middle East or from Pakistan, discriminatory stuff until it hurts the whole community and they start getting tough with their children. They hate us for letting our children have sex and take drugs while they've got to stop their children killing people. And so that was Martin Amos's response in 2001. And I think that's, that is obviously tackling it head on in a, obviously a, a very crude and a, a way that we might disagree with. But I think it is an, an important question how the left kind of does this in a way that's not just apologism for kind of foreign uh, foreign, po- foreign policy mistakes but actually says what is the, really the link here and how do we address it so it's yeah so- that's right i think you have to you have to like it's kind of the mediation between the domestic and the international as well um because you can point out that you know western foreign policy has been completely destabilizing that it's created spaces for islamists to actually gain power um and that even aside from any ideological aspects, it just provides it with a certain material force, which means that it, um, which means that it can be imported back into the West, and that's not 
necessarily even a blowback argument. It's just that it creates the conditions for. But that's still that's that's kind of a, a, a perhaps a necessary but not sufficient condition uh, to explain why jihadism happens in, in Western societies and why it has its roots in a particular um, a particular kind of alienation that that Olivier Huard describes well in, in kind of studying these jihadists um, in France especially. Um, but I think there, there's another kind of response, which is a kind of right-wing, let's say, communitarian, liberal, or social conservative response, which kind of goes, no, this isn't a problem with Islam, but what we need is moderate Islam. We need a reform within Islam, right? And one, the kind of tendency of the left is to say, no, well, you know, screw that. Why do we care? You know, that we should be absolutely secularist. We shouldn't really care about whether Islam is, the form of Islam is radical or whether it's conservative or whether it's reformist and liberal or whatever. Like, it, you know, the left response tends to be, no, we should have socialism and, and screw all this Islam stuff, right? Um, but what I think at least that those kind of communitarian responses seize on is that they sense a sort of emptiness in secularism, right? They feel that it's somehow insufficient, that there's a sort of emptiness to this cold liberal secularism. So they propose abandoning it. This is their solution both in Western societies that we need, that they try to um, offer a response to a crisis of meaning in the West, but also within Islam that they try to reform it and create a more you know, convivial form of Islam, for lack of a better, for lack of a better way of putting it. Um, and I think in that they kind of do seize on something, which is that pure secularism maybe isn't enough. You need something a little bit warmer, something with a sense of mission, of belonging, of values. Um, maybe putting the you know the social in socialism um, rather than what the jihadists um, seize on, which is let's remember the jihadists are globalists too, right? They have this sort of placeless and opportunistic outrage about Chechnya or Syria or Palestine or whatever, but they're just isolated individuals, and so the response to it, which might be one which isn't purely repressive and isn't and doesn't just say, hey, foreign policy is creating this, but is to offer a more fulfilling sense of belonging and meaning in, in Western society. Yeah, I mean so there's a few things there I think which are worth um which are worth thinking about. So I mean it's so it seems to me like what you could say, I mean what we're pushing then is there is something specific about Islam in this and I think Alex picked up on something about its global character so it has um, I think the global dimension is what gives that sense of plugging in to disaffected alienated dropout kind of uh, losers which is the jihadi profile young men kind of young loser guy and um, it can connect you Right, so in the sense of not a proper connection, not a kind of um, connection that's face to face, but plugging into some um, kind of decontextualized, disembodied uh, litany of global issues, like you say, kind of the suffering of children in Syria, very humanitarian, kind of a similar kind of litany of um, globalized claims that you get in humanitarianism. Um, on top of that, then it also it has that kind of oppositional element to it. Islamism and Islam being associated with um, kind of resistance and hostility to Western imposition. So it has a kind of degraded, um, a degraded latter-day anti-imperial um, edge to it, which I guess is also appealing. Um, it's a complete way of life if you kind of subscribe to this kind of fundamentalist, to a fundamentalist vision of reforming your life in line with this set of values. And it's also obviously conservative and explicitly rejects the um, hedonistic, decadent um, 
consumerist, materialist orientation of modern life. So in all of those things, uh, which is to say at least the kind of the conservative um, Salafi, Wahhabi-inspired version of, um, of um, Islamic kind of piety, so all of that suggests that it has this, I mean, I think this is what helps explain, instead of kind of trying to um, explain away the role of Islam in these models, you have to be willing to criticize it and account for why it serves a particular purpose in um, giving some kind of ideological form to to these uh, to these losers, for these losers. I think this is also where you can bring in the gender element as well. Um, rather than just saying it's entirely toxic masculinity, you can say that an element of, or, or a reason, part of the reason why this might appeal to certain loser, and we've, we've used that phrase a number of times, but unfortunately Trump did get it right, these guys are just fucking losers. Um, and you look at that, that's all, all these sort of, sort of nihilistic terrorists are just complete ball bags, aren't they? Um, but what, what would appeal to them is that they've, they, uh, there's clearly an element in which the society in which they live in Western societies doesn't have, they, they feel that the elevated place that they perhaps deserve isn't, isn't realised or is being eroded. Um, and I guess this, this links to, to a whole swathe of the, of the alt-right as well in a non-religious direction. Yeah. But, yeah, sorry, Alex, you were... No, no, that's, we're just agreeing with me. With the, I thought you were just going to interrupt. It's, well, <laughs> no, I, can I interrupt? I was just going to affirm your point. I think it's a really good point that you make in terms of drawing um, a sort of parallel with the alt-right because it's, it's basement-dwelling losers, right, who feel separated off from any sort of culture. They're not integrated into any sense of belonging and that they, they, they kind of they hate their parents. <laughs> you know, there's, there's a sort of generational revolt, which is something that Olivier Roy explains very well. Um, and that they find a sense of pride. Maybe belonging and meaning is a weird way of describing their attachment to nihilism because as if like they find meaning in nihilism. But I think that's kind of right. And, and Olivier Roy, I think, uh, in an article from, from Foreign Policy about a year ago, he says um, that they, uh, they exhibit their new almighty selves, their desire for revenge, for their suppressed frustrations, the pleasure they derive from the new power lent to them by their willingness to kill, and their fascination with their own death. Uh, and he concludes nihilism and pride are profoundly tied to each other. And you find this in a certain certain cocksure alt-right milieu, which also tries yeah, to... Yeah, this is a part of go, 4chan, almost. Yeah, that's right. So I think, so I think that that sense of... of Finding meaning in in nihilism. I mean, it's it's kind of like it's it's like teenage goth losers, except just so much more sad and destructive. Yeah. Um, teenage goth losers with bombs. And I, you know, I say this as a former teenage goth loser, so you know, I should know. Really, I can. I I, I can't imagine. Actually, maybe I can. The base of the basement <laughs> dwelling owner. No, nah, let's not probe that. Too Some much things further. don't change. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, don't worry. We'll look into your. We'll just. We'll look into your. Uh, Browser history. Browser history and, <laughs> yeah, decision decision making tree with your programmers later. Don't worry about it. We'll yeah, no, the, I think the conclusion will be like this guy's this guy's not dangerous. He's he actually is just a loser. <laughs> yeah, you're not meant to laugh that much, George. Sorry. Yeah. Anyway, so one of the issues, I mean, linked to that then is um, is there? I mean, given given the government that's in charge at the moment, um, uh, the Tory government in the UK has um, introduced a kind of quasi-state of emergency, France, even under the new president. 
is is still in the state of emergency that was declared by the previous president following the Bataclan massacre a couple of years ago now, which is the longest that um, the longest use of the constitutional state of emergency powers since the war in Algeria. Um, Britain, I mean, hasn't declared a state of emergency, but um, troops were mobilised in order to help supplement police forces, and there's been a rolling campaign of arrests and as uh, the police try to identify um, the wide network connected with the Manchester attack. Um, and it raises the question then if there is, um, well, if the response is the right one. But also, um, given that we're in the midst of an election, uh, which was only briefly suspended, um, should there be some kind of distinctive response um, by a by the by left-wing government? Um, so if you give the example, one thing that um, the Labour Party leader who's campaigning here in the UK, he accused the Tory government as part of the austerity that partly this is a result of the austerity uh, drive they've had over the last few years where you've had significant cuts to um, frontline police forces, thousands of police officers being sacked, and that uh, the Labour government has already in its manifesto committed to reversing the cuts, cuts in police forces and that a enhanced police presence would be part of their response to making the UK more secure from future terrorist attacks. What do we think about that? I mean, Jesus Christ, that's fucking tragic, isn't it? <laughs> For a police state of the left, I mean, I just, I think we can dismiss that pretty quickly, right? I, I just don't see an argument for that. It's pretty opportunistic, basically. Uh, the left would laugh for decades about the Tory policies proposing we need more police on the street, and for that matter, actually, under New Labour as well, which is always promising more cops on the streets. Um, which is a sort of easily easy right populist sort of response, which doesn't really tackle any serious <clears throat> problems. And I think I think it's pretty opportunistic of Corbyn uh, to try to use that as a way to attack Theresa May. Yeah, we've we've got a police state of the left. We've got nukes for the left. We've got <laughs> yeah, that's right. we've got we've got a pretty aggressive left here in, in Britain. Um, <laughs> one thing that I saw that really made me think um, was that okay, that the left uh, that the introducing more more police would be absolutely the wrong response because uh, the left or the new Labour variant of the left presided over um, the, ch the chipping away of a lot of, of, of freedoms and a sort of petty authoritarianism, which is exactly the sort of state that creates this this sort of this sort of response, this um, constantly being observed, being surveilled, um, where it leads to this kind of nihilistic, loserish terrorist feeling like they're kind of against the, the police state which is which is obviously ridiculous but it it reinforces this idea that you the, these things you they're too dangerous to even think so you must be cool if you're able to to countenance them the other point i guess is as well which has also been made is um that i think simon jenkins made this point in the guardian is the 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 security services who is who are primarily responsible as it becomes clear increasingly clear not only responsible for stopping, supposedly for stopping this kind of thing, but are actually responsible for setting up jihadi networks to funnel arms and insurgents around the world. Not dissimilarly to the fact that the CIA, you know, I mean, um, Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda, basically CIA agents gone rogue, um, in a similar kind of way that they actually created uh, international jihadi network, supplied it, supported it, um organized it, all of that. And they've been lavished with funding, resources, glamour, 
um, huge increase in numbers, like a huge boost in numbers not seen since the days of the Cold War, since the launch of the War on Terror. So, I mean, it's also worth bearing in mind that the, um, as far as austerity is concerned with our security services, it's certainly not been felt in the secret police sector of the state. And it turns out, in fact, that they have a, not that they're responsible for um, radicalizing these losers, but that they clearly have played an important part in setting up the kinds of networks that allow for the socialization, exposure to uh, military training and bomb making experience and skills, um, which otherwise would be much more difficult to secure. Yeah, I mean, I think like there's this sort of response like, somebody please do something. We need to do more to combat jihadism. And this is one case where you can just say, can we all just do less? Just stop doing whatever the fuck you're doing. Can we have less policy? Can we have less state, basically? Um, and it's not working. I, I mean, it's just not working. Just just stop that. <laughs> stop that right now. Um, but I think as to your initial point about what would a putative left-wing government do, what would it be re- its response? I mean, the, the sensible left response up to now has been, Let's defend civil liberties against state repression, be against racism and any form of divisive communitarianism, uh, and attack the destabilizing force of Western foreign policy, which creates a spaces for jihadism to gain power. But I still don't think that's enough. I mean, that's as to your point. Um, I think that the left, I mean, those are fine on on a kind of policy level, um, on a political level, but I still think the left needs a sort of a cultural response, um, which is more fulfilling and more substantial uh, than just these negative proposals of let's defend civil liberties against state repression. Let's not go and bomb the shit out of Libya or Iraq or whatever and completely fuck up these states. There needs to be something more than that. But then what do you, I mean, so how does that not go to a kind of traditional vision of the state um, engineering some kind of collect- collective um, communal vision of society. Quite so, you know, you can't, how do you make the case for um, scaling back surveillance, scaling back um, the war machine abroad and scaling back the surveillance state um, at the same time as you expect the state to, or, you know, I mean, how else could you, you could only be the state that you could call upon to generate this response. I mean, I think, and surely this goes back to what we were saying before, it's got to be that the left has to, in terms of um, what more the left a left response would need, would be to a willingness to attack and to criticise religious conservatism, um, backward-looking piety, um, introversion, kind of religious introversion, and that this means a willingness to condemn to condemn um, religious obscurantism and conservatism, quite the opposite from quite the opposite from the discourse that has been dominant um, in terms of multiculturalism, a defence of identity politics and plural kind of uh, plural identities, um, and that that surely has got to be part of it. So rather than put forward a positive, it's not incumbent on people who are left wing to put forward a positive case. I don't think for cohering society, um, but certainly they can put forward a critical case in response to um, and be willing to attack the kind of conservative um, Islamization or the <clears throat> conservative forms of um, religious, modern kind of religious fundamentalism and piety, which must be a critical component at some level of jihadism. Yeah, right. So, I mean, I think there's, there's, 
Go on, George. You want to say something? Yeah, no. I I think this is something which has been um, been kind of preoccupying me a little bit. It's, it's trying to think what would the what would the elements of of the the left response to this be? And one I think would be to attack religious conservatism, as Phil said. Second, to attack to condemn the ty- the terrorists. Absolutely, don't take a backward step and focus on their nihilism. Defend Enlightenment values um, and you know, kind of lived freedoms of, of various sorts. But I don't know if we're going to be getting on to talking about this later, but one thing that I've seen raised in, often in right-wing responses to, to, to this incident, is the place of immigration. And I think we probably all know what we think about this, or maybe maybe I'm assuming. Um, but is, is, is that, how, how do we integrate that into the left response to this? How do we kind of I guess you, I guess it's a case of tying all these things together to a certain extent. Well, so I think as to the immigration thing, I think we can be maintain a, a position of in favor of open borders or at least fairly lax immigration controls. Um, but you have to provide something more. And I think a lot of people, when you when the sort of call for for freedom for individual freedoms is made as good as that is, people. I think kind of find that maybe insubstantial. They kind of maybe even see freedom as the problem. And that's something that I think we really have to grapple with. I'm not proposing any sort of uh, simple answer to that. Um, As to what I was saying before about culture and integration, um, I'm not sure that's that's something that a left government could provide. So when when Phil said, you know, now you're expecting, you're expecting the state to roll back the war on terror, but at the same time take on a much stronger cultural role in integration, I'm not saying that necessarily. I'm saying I think the left should do it in terms of social movements, labor unions, and so on, forms of community and belonging, which a lot of the sort of the left in the past 20, 30, 40 years has really abandoned in favor of a, of a sort of um, sort of an anomic yeah, individualism. But surely the point of the left isn't to offer a community and belonging. And that would be to take a totally instrumental view of the perp, I mean, the traditional purpose of these, uh, of um, social movements, I, and working but, class, labour organisations, was to transform society. I, it wasn't to provide community. Right. But it was always a very important side effect of that, that in doing so, that you were integrating people, that you were abolishing differences of, of race and gender through the process of activism, whether it be basic labor activism or whatever social movements that you're involved in. And I think that's very important and something that the left has in large part forgotten. I think there is a sort of leftist Marxist blind spot on, on culture and meeting um, that people like philosopher Alistair McIntyre has grappled with, um, trying to create a, a sense of left morality, a sense of what the good life might be, an ethos which might go beyond just abstract questions of justice. And I think that's something to tussle with. At the same time, I'm very, at least instinctively, inclined to the other side of just defending hedonism, defending individualism, defending going out and getting drunk and wearing short skirts and all the rest of it, um, which the jihadists explicitly attack. Um, and I think balancing those two is really tricky, and I don't, I don't have the answer for that. I think that's a really good point, Alex. Do you want to expand on that a little bit more? Well, I just think that, it, again... I don't have the answer, but there's a there's a need to balance uh, a defense of even libertinism. I mean, I've written something a little bit about this in response to the Paris attacks, um, relying on the Marquis de Sade kind of tying of rep- a republican spirit to an individual libertinism, which abandons 
previously held moral hang-ups and sort of lingering puritanism. And the left, you know, has an ascetic strain to it as much as social conservatives do. And there's a slight maybe discomfort with defending meaningless consumption and hedonism and instead defending an authentic life and political commitment. And I think it's important to state that these aren't opposed. Like, that the problem with individualistic, hedonistic consumption isn't the hedonism. It's maybe perhaps that it's a bit too isolated, too commodified, but that this a fullness of life of going out and doing whatever you want and determining your own life of being young and free that's a good thing and the left should continue to defend that at the same time i think it also maybe needs to develop some a little bit of a grander claim a sense of where society is heading and what it means to be a member of this society beyond just you can do what you want i think that's really tricky i don't have an answer to that i mean it's, yeah it's a really it's a really big question i think one that the left as the at least in the UK, as the organised left was defeated in the 80s politically, since then there has really been a, a bit of a void around that. Some of these big questions about around how you formulate a conception of the good life, um, which is rooted in communities on on the left, and one which is which moves beyond just participating in politics and also having just having a good time. And I thought the the Market Sad uh, piece on on your blog was excellent. So thanks. No, thank you. So one thing, I mean, something that's interesting then wrapping this up, wrapping this conversation up is um, I suppose it's worth remembering that obviously whatever the left can offer, it must be on its own. It must be for its own purpose um, and not obviously as a response to nihilistic terror, which is worth bearing in mind. I mean, obviously, if nihilism and um, a lack of social cohesiveness and purpose is a wider problem in society, then um, jihadism is a very kind of marginal effect of that, if it really is a kind of a wide, uh, a widely felt um, social problem, then it's something which, um, for which a response isn't, shouldn't be geared to the most kind of extreme and marginal expression of that disaffection, alienation and disconnection. And that it must be for its own ends, and perhaps that's the mis the mistaken uh, the mistaken formulating it in this way, that um, the problem of jihadism is um, a social it is a social problem, but it's the point the way to resolve it isn't directly to address it, but rather to return to having some kind of um, vision of a better, much more better, uh, improved society for its own sake. Um, and that that is worthwhile on its own. And I don't know, I mean, the point, I mean, my understanding of the left is that it's not about community, um, and so I'm more sympathetic individually to um, the more libertine vision of um, individual freedom and uh, emancipating oneself from the uh, traditions of the past as part of that. But it's, um, but I think that's, in terms of understanding the situation, perhaps that's the takeaway point is that the direction, it's not to direct it towards resolving, not to come up with ideas to resolve the alienation at the root of jihadi terrorism, but rather that doing what the left was supposed to do all the time would make uh, nihilism and disaffection um, less important and less significant simply as a byproduct. They would kind of disappear en route, as it were. Um, so uh, I hope we hope you've enjoyed have enjoyed this episode of Alpha Bunga Bunga. 
Next time we're going to be, we have a very, uh, we have an exciting break with the routine, emancipating ourselves from the past by having a guest on, a special guest who is actually a human and not a robot. Um, and uh, we'll be talking about the upcoming British election and the manifestos of the various parties. You've been listening to Aifa Bunga Bunga. Join us once again in a week's time.